All right, so I'm excited to announce that we have now reached in our verse-by-verse study um, what most likely is the most popular verse in the entire Bible, and of course, that is John 3.16. And so we see this famous verse, right, on T-shirts. We see it on billboards. You know, we see it on bumper stickers on the back of cars. We see it on wall plaques. We see it um, on coffee mugs. And of course, we see it below the eyes of Tim Tebow. Yes. Go Gators, right? Oh, no, not really. Okay. Is it Hurricanes or Seminoles? Mm, Okay, I'm going to start a war here, so I'll keep going. Why is John 3.16 so popular? Well, Got Questions, I think, did a really good job explaining why. No other verse in the Bible so succinctly summarizes God's relationship with humanity and the way of salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, John 3.16 is clear. John 3.16 is concise. And it shows God's heart of love toward all people, not just some people. It shows his heart of love toward all people. And it shows his offer of salvation to all mankind. Okay, so what does it say? We're going to read it together on the count of three. I appreciate it if you would look on the screen and read the ESV version. On the count of three, you ready? One, two, three, go for God. Rings true, doesn't it? And so, God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes. It's important we understand what that word means. And so Vine's Expository Dictionary defines believe as, quote, to be persuaded of, and hence to place confidence in, to trust, to have reliance upon. So the idea there, it's not mere intellectual assent, not mere intellectual agreement, that's important, but it also includes personal trust. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever personally trusts in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now as powerful as John 3.16 is by itself, we need to look at its context so that we can better understand um, the full picture of its meaning. In other words, we gotta remember that John 3.16, you know, it comes before John 3.14 and 15. And so we need to study it, we need to interpret it in light of those verses. All right, so by way of review from last week, we're gonna start in John 3.14 this morning. So right now, if you're looking at John 3.14, can you please say amen so I know you're there? Okay, so here we go. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Life. And so if you remember from last week, during their wilderness wanderings, uh, the Israelites spoke out. They spoke out against God. They spoke out against Moses, thus sinning against the Lord. 
They said, why have you brought us, Moses, out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? We have no food. We have no water. All we have is this uh, manna, this worthless manna, which we loathe. Now, that's what you call sin. And because of their sin, what did God do? God sent judgment. And then all of a sudden, you see that there's snakes, there's serpents that appear in the camp of Israel, and the snakes bit the people, and the Bible says that many died. Okay, so that got the attention of the people, and you gotta hear this, the people came under conviction. They came under the conviction of their sin, and they turned to the Lord in repentance. Let me read to you Numbers chapter 21, verse seven, and I quote, the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told Moses, I want you to make a fiery serpent. I want you to make a fiery snake. And I want you to set it, Moses, on a pole. And then God made a promise. God made a promise that everyone who was bitten, if they looked at the serpent, they would live. And so Moses did what the Lord had said, and we'll put the picture up on the screen for you so you can kind of get a visual of what's going on. He made the bronze serpent, and he lifted it up on the pole. And ladies and gentlemen, when the repentant people, when they um, looked at that bronze serpent, when the repentant people who had been bitten by snakes and were dying, when the repentant people who were helpless to save themselves, when the repentant people looked in faith at that serpent and they believed God's promise to save them, when they looked with the eyes of faith, they lived. And as we learned last week, as Jesus is telling the story or referring to the story with Nicodemus, Jesus identified with the serpent on the pole. Did you see that in verse 14? Look at it again, please. And Mo, as Moses lifted up the, please shout out the next word, serpent in the wilderness, so must the, please shout out the three words there, son of man. Do you see the identification there? So must the Son of Man be lifted up. All right, so why in the world? Why in the world would Jesus identify with a bronze serpent lifted up on a pole? As I said last week, bronze symbolizes judgment. The serpent symbolizes our sin, and the pole symbolized the cross. Okay, so never forget this. This was such a good point. I'm gonna put it on the screen again. In identifying himself with the bronze serpent on the pole, Jesus prophesied his death on the cross where he would be judged for our sin and in our place. You see, that, that is the context for the most famous verse in the Bible. But because John 3.16, right, is so often taken out of its context and quoted by itself, most people have no clue that John 3.16 is linked, Jesus linked John 3.16 with Numbers chapter 21, the story in Numbers 21. 
Most people, because so many people just quote John 3.16 by itself, most people have no clue that Jesus identified with a bronze serpent lifted up on a pole, thereby prophesying that he would be lifted up on a cross. All right, so why? Why in the world um, was Jesus lifted up on a cross? Well, he did it to die for our sins. And so, with the whole context, let's read the whole flow of it again. Allow the word of God to get into not just your mind, but your heart. And as Moses, verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How did he give his only son? By allowing his only son to be lifted up on a cross, to die for our sins. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, it's when we leave John 3.16 in its context and we explain it in the light of John 3.14 and 15, it helps us understand at a deeper level what the most famous verse in the Bible means. And so here's the gospel in the nutshell. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear this. Please listen with humble hearts right now. We have all been bitten, so to speak, by the serpent of our sin. We all have been born with a sin nature, and we all have chosen to sin in our lives. And help me out, the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. It's like we all have the venom of death inside of us, and for sure, all of us are under condemnation. All right, so what's God's response? Is God's response, you blew it. I don't care. Forget you. No. His response is, I love you. And I so love the world. I gave my only son to die for you, to pay the price of your sin. And so hear the gospel. When a person turns to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Okay, so what is repentance? What's the definition of repentance? In its most basic definition, repentance is a change of mind. And so when a person turns to Christ in repentance, what does that mean? They change their mind about their sin. They change their mind about themselves. They change their mind about the Savior. You can't leave this out of the gospel. When someone right, changes their mind about their sin, they acknowledge the fact that my sin is wrong. They acknowledge the fact that my sin has offended God. They acknowledge the fact that the penalty of my sin is death. And they acknowledge the fact that I am in desperate need of forgiveness. They change their mind about their sin. They change their mind about self. What does that mean? Like the Israelites, there is nothing I can do. I've been bitten. I'm dying. There's nothing I can do to save myself. There's no good work I can perform to earn my way to heaven. I need a savior. When they change their mind about the savior, that Jesus Christ is God's only son. Fully God, fully man. 
and he left heaven, came to earth on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost, and I am lost. When a person turns to Christ in repentance and faith, what's faith? Again, personal trust and reliance upon. Okay, so when they look in faith at Jesus Christ on the cross, and they believe that he died to pay for their sins and rose again, and they receive him as their personal savior and Lord. Listen, God gives them the gift of eternal life, and they're saved. It's such good news. It's, it's such good news that, man, I think right now we should put our hands together and thank God for the gospel. We were in a whole heap of trouble and God didn't say, forget you, you're on your own. He came. He came to rescue us. And then after we're saved, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, our faith is evidenced by a changed life. Why? Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so... John, right, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what's John's goal for his readers as we're reading through John chapter three? Well, regarding John's desire for his readers, D.A. Carson said this, that they will turn to the lifted up son of man with the same simple, desperate, unqualified faith as the Israelites displayed who turned to the bronze snake in the desert. By such faith and such faith alone can anyone experience the new birth and thereby gain eternal life. Such good news. And you know, when I ask you guys to clap and I ask you guys to applaud, I'm not doing it to rile up the crowd or get you all, guys all emotional. You know why I'm doing it? Because Jesus Christ, by most of the world, is virtually ignored. And we have the opportunity, after hearing the good news of the gospel, after hearing that we were in a whole heap of trouble, but he came because he loves us to save us, we have an opportunity to worship him and praise him. And so I'm gonna give you guys another opportunity right now to worship and praise him. We thank God. And so verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. That's a great term. We should use it. We should love it. Saved. But that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, so that's very sobering. And it's very, very important as we explain the gospel to people that we give them both the bad news and the good news, and it's important to give them the bad news first. Okay, in other words, people need to realize that they're lost before they can be found. This makes sense, right? People need to realize that they're sinners before they see their need for a savior. People need to realize that they're guilty before they can be forgiven. 
As you read the awesome letter of Paul to the church at Rome, you see this coming out in his inspired letter. The apostle Paul uh, said this, quote, Romans chapter three, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, look at this, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. All right, so what's the bad news? The bad news is that mankind is under condemnation. The bad news is that because everybody has broken God's law, everybody stands guilty before him. And by the way, a person's good deeds aren't gonna help because last two lines, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. All right, so what's the only remedy? The only remedy is in the very beginning of verse 18. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. Okay, by, by way of raising your hand, how many of you have turned to Christ in repentance and faith and been born again by the Spirit of God. Let me just see your hand if that's you. All right, so I want you to imagine that you're in a courtroom, and in that courtroom there's a judge, and there's a defendant, and there's an accuser, kinda like a prosecuting attorney. Now who's the judge? The judge um, yes, is God specifically the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ? And the reason I say that is because Jesus said in John chapter five, verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And so the judge is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The prosecutor is the devil. Because Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the devil is called the accuser of the brothers and sisters. So the, the, the judge is the son of God. The prosecutor is the devil, and the defendant is you. Everybody who raised their hand, it's you. Now, think about this for a minute. As you stand before Jesus Christ, what is Satan doing? Satan's doing what he loves to do. He's accusing you. <laughs> He's going to town. He's accusing you of this, that, and the other thing, and as he's railing against you, as Paul said, your mouth is stopped, you can't say anything, because you know you have sinned, and you know the wages of sin is death. But then imagine this, the judge, the son of God, what does he do? He gets up from his seat of judgment and he comes down and he stands next to you. And you look at him and you say, what are you doing? And he looks at you and he says, I'm not just your judge, I'm your advocate. I'm your defender. I'm your defense attorney. And listen, as he goes to town, and as he passionately defends you, you notice that there's scars in his hands and on his brow, and his eyes are filled with love for you. Amen. 
And what does he say to the accuser? He says, I was lifted up on a cross. I died for the defendant's sin. I have risen from the grave. They have turned to me in repentance and faith. Therefore, they are not guilty. They have been forgiven. Devil, leave them alone. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what we revel in. And that's why we're so grateful and thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a born-again Christian, never forget this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, pardon the bad English, that's all y'all, and me too, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that theological term propitiation mean? It means satisfaction or appeasement. In other words, God's divine justice has to be satisfied. Okay, so what's the sentence for criminals who are guilty of sin? Okay, help me out again. The wages of sin is death. Physical death, but also spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God, not annihilation. Eternal separation from God forever, paying for our own sins. That's the sentence. And divine justice um, demands that, but here's the good news. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he has appeased, he has satisfied that divine justice by his atoning sacrifice for us. And listen, not just for us, but but it also says, um, and for um, not just uh, our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, so if you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to notice the rest of verse 18. Right, so he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. All right, so why in the world would anybody ever not believe in the name of the only Son of God? Well, Jesus explains why in verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That leads you to your next point. And that is that the reason that people, the people that Jesus is talking about in verses 19 and 20, the reason people avoid the light of the world is because they love the darkness of their sin. So don't blame God. Stop blaming God. The problem's with us, not with him. The problem's with mankind. When I was in Bible college a really long time ago, Every Friday night, me and my buddies would go out into the city and we would share the gospel. And this one particular Friday night, we were in a, um, a pretty um, dangerous area uh, and we uh, didn't care. You know, we just, 
wanted to share the love of Jesus with people. And so we were there, and we were walking around the back of this apartment complex. And as we did that, we noticed there was a group of men that were all huddled up, and apparently there was a drug deal going on. And they must have thought that we were the police, because when they saw us walking up towards them, we just wanted to share the love of Jesus, but as they, they, they saw us walking up towards them, they just like scattered immediately. Now why in the world did they disband so fast? The answer is in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious that even though they loved their drugs, and even though they loved the money that they made from selling their drugs, they didn't want their drug deal to be exposed, they didn't want to become convicted for their crime, so they scattered. And so why, why in the world do some people avoid the light of the world, Jesus Christ? Because they know that if they come into the light, their sin that they love, their sin, whatever it may be, is going to be exposed. And this is why so often when you try to share the love of Jesus with someone, they put up a wall. They get mad. They don't wanna hear it. This is why when you invite some people to come to church, they put up a wall. They get mad. They don't wanna hear it. Well, listen, verses 19 through 20, they describe unsaved people who love the darkness of their sin they hate the light of Christ and they refuse to come into his light. But, verse 21, contrast, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay, so follow the flow here of what Jesus is saying. In verses 19 and 20, He's describing unsaved people who are hiding from the light, but now in verse 21, he describes a saved person who doesn't hide, but welcomes the light. He welcomes, she welcomes the light of Jesus Christ. Now how does a person in verse 21 get saved? How did they get saved, by their good works? No, you gotta keep John 3.16 in the context and you gotta interpret all these verses together. And so in the context of John 3.16, the person in verse 21 is saved by faith in Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. Jesus said to believers in Matthew chapter five, verse 16, he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now we go to verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing, so this is John the Baptist, was also baptizing at Ainon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized Verse 24, for John, John the Baptist, had not yet been put in prison. All right, so at some point um, after his meeting with Nicodemus, what does Jesus do? Jesus leaves the big city of Jerusalem and he goes out into the small, smaller rural areas in the Judean countryside. Okay, and so get the picture, Jesus and his disciples, they're ministering to the kind of country folk, right, in the, the hills of Judea, and apparently, pretty close by, 
you have John and his disciples and they're ministering to people as well. Okay, so I hope you have that picture in your mind. Jesus and his disciples, they're ministering to people. And then you have John and his disciples, John the Baptist, and they're ministering to people as well. And now we go to verse 25. It says that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now I know some of you um, are wondering what in the world the content of this discussion or perhaps argument um, was, but here's what I wanna point out, that John, the author of the gospel, he doesn't elaborate at all. So apparently, it didn't matter at all. And so if John doesn't elaborate, we're not gonna spend time on it either. Look at verse 26. It says, and they, that's the disciples of John the Baptist, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look. Can you see them pointing over the hill? Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And so we see here that John's disciples discover that Jesus and his disciples are over here ministering to people, baptizing, and by the way, we'll find out in John chapter four, Jesus wasn't baptizing his disciples were, but, but the point is, John's disciples kinda look over the hill and, and, and they notice that Jesus and his disciples are ministering to people, listen to this, and they notice that more and more people are going to Jesus and less and less people are going to them. Now, let me ask you a question. More and more people are going to Jesus. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You tell me. Yeah, that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. More people are going to Jesus. Larger crowds are going to Jesus. Isn't that the point? So that's a good thing. Unless you're John's disciple and you have a heart of jealousy against Jesus and his disciples. Unless you're John's disciple and you have uh, this competitive spirit, and you think that your ministry is in competition with this ministry over here, and you notice that your ministry is shrinking, and their ministry is getting larger. Well, I guess if you have that attitude, which by the way is a carnal attitude, then perhaps it's not such a good thing. You know what's so sad to me? It's so sad to me when really solid evangelical churches feel like they're in competition with each other. It's really sad to me when solid evangelical churches and the leaders of those churches, they become jealous of one another and they begin to put up walls in between churches and they begin um, to uh, feel like, man, I hope my church can get bigger than his church. Well, here's a newsflash. It's not our church, it's Jesus' church. And what do we need to do? We need to kick down the walls that divide us and we need to join together in sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the spirit, that's the attitude that the Lord Jesus blesses. But John the Baptist's disciples, they didn't have that attitude. I'm wondering why in the world are they still with John the Baptist? Why aren't they over there with Jesus? And so, John, we used to get the large crowds. Now they're all going to Jesus, right? Getting them a tissue 
And let's see how John the Baptist answers them in verse 27. He says in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. I love that, that's powerful. Yeah, you know why that church is being blessed? God's blessing them, you should rejoice. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, guys, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must, what? Decrease. I love John the Baptist's attitude. This is the spirit-filled attitude. And so I can see him um, correcting his disciples. And he's like, guys, I've already told you this. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the messenger. It was my job to prepare his way. Now it's my job to get out of his way. He's got to increase. I have to decrease. You see, John wanted his disciples to know this, that Jesus was the groom. John was the best man. And genuine believers we're the bride. You know, at every single wedding that I have ever been to, and I've been to a lot of weddings in my life, but every single wedding that I've ever been to, at the end of the ceremony, when the minister stands up, right, and he announces uh, to the congregation, it's now my privilege to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. At every single wedding that I've ever been to, at that point, the groom goes and takes the arm of the bride, and with smiles from ear to ear, they walk out of the building together. And every single wedding that I've ever been to, when it gets to that point where the minister says, it's now my privilege to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, here's what I've never seen at that point. I've never seen at that point the best man look at the groom and say, excuse me, buddy, and grab the bride and walk out of the church. I've never seen that not one time. And that's why John the Baptist said in verse 29, he says the one who has the bride is the groom. The best man just stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bride, <coughs> bridegroom's voice. And so here, here's, here's the point. John the Baptist, he knew his place. He wasn't trying to be someone God um, did not create him to be. John the Baptist knew his place. John the Baptist was submissive to the God-given authority that had been placed over him. John the Baptist was humble. John the Baptist pointed the bride to the groom, Jesus. And that's why you see John the Baptist talking about how happy and joyful he is. And so ladies and gentlemen, it's so simple, right? If we don't know our place, if we try to be something God didn't create us to be, if we're not submissive to the God-given authority that God's put over us, if we're not humble, if we're not pointing people to Jesus, just the opposite of happy John, we're gonna be miserable. So let's change our attitudes and let's learn from the example of John the Baptist here. Now here's what you need to know as we begin to wrap this up. 
that the rest of the chapter, verses 31 through 36, um, there's a debate among evangelical scholars as to who um, gave these words. Some believe John the Baptist is still speaking to his disciples all the way to the end of the chapter. Others say, no, John's done speaking. When he said he must increase, I must decrease, he's done. And now this is John, the author of the Gospels, um, additional commentary, right? And, and he, here's the thing. Um, I like debates like that because I love studying the Bible, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether verses 31 through 36 are the words of John the Baptist or the words of John the Evangelist. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, everybody look at me, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God, right? And so, this is God's word. Let's look at it, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. In the context, that's John the Baptist. He who comes from heaven is above all. That's Jesus, and it speaks of Jesus' preeminence. And so Jesus is high above John the Baptist or anyone else. The question is, does Jesus Christ have first place in your heart and in your life? Verse 32, he, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, Yet no one receives his testimony. Remember, he came unto his own, his own received him not. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And so even though he came unto his own and his own received him not, as many as received him, John 1, 12, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And if you're a child of God, born again through faith in Jesus Christ, you know God is true. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit, okay, so the Father gives the Holy Spirit, inference there to Jesus, without measure, okay? And so even though John the Baptist, it's true, right? John the Baptist and the Old Testament prophets, they had a large measure of the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit um, on their ministries. But Jesus, Jesus had a limitless measure of the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit on his ministry. That's why back in verse 26, all are flocking now uh, to Jesus. And so now we look at the last two verses. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now this is one of, the, one of the reasons I love being a Calvary Chapel affiliated church because Chuck Smith, who's now with the Lord, taught all of us pastors, just take them through the Bible verse by verse. And as you take people through the Bible verse by verse, uh, you can't skip over verses that make people uncomfortable. You can't avoid topics like 
the wrath of God. But when you teach the whole counsel of God, you get the whole story. John gives his readers a sobering choice. They can either put their trust in the Son of God or they can reject the Son of God. If they put their trust in him, as I said earlier, turning to Christ in repentance and faith, they receive eternal life. If they reject Jesus, they remain under God's wrath. Serious stuff. So I leave you with this verse. Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be, what's the word? Saved. Saved. And who is that person? What is that name? Jesus. Jesus. The question is this. Are you saved?